Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. It's a podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic-skeptic mind space. In this week's show, we are honored to have the world-renowned scholar John Dominic Croissant. He was born in Ireland in 1934 and was educated in both Ireland and the United States. He received a Doctorate of Divinity from Maynooth College in 1959 and did postdoctoral research at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome from 1959 to 1961, as well as at the Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem from 1965 to 1967. He was a member of a 13th century Roman Catholic religious order, the Servites, from 1950 to 1969, and was ordained as a priest from 1957 to 1969. He joined the DePaul University faculty in Chicago in 1969 and remained there until 1995. He is now a professor emeritus in its Department of Religious Studies. He was co-chair of the Jesus Seminar from 1985 to 1996 as I met twice a year to debate the historicity of the life of Jesus and the Gospels. He was the chair of the Parables Seminar in 1972 all the way to 1976 and the editor of Semea, an experimental journal for biblical criticism from 1980 to 1986. He was also chair of the Historical Jesus section of the Society of Biblical Literature publication from 1993 to 1998. This was an international scholarly association which studied biblical issues in the United States. He was elected vice president of that society for 2010 to 2011 as well as becoming its president from 2011 to 2012. He has received awards for scholarly excellence from the American Academy of Religion in 1999, from DePaul University in 1991 and 1995, and an honorary doctorate from Stetson University in Florida in 2003. He has lectured to lay and scholarly audiences across the United States, as well as in Ireland, England, Scandinavia, Finland, Australia, and Zealand. Brazil, Japan, and South Africa. He has been interviewed on 200 radio stations, including four times on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross. He has been interviewed on television networks in England, such as Weekend TV, Channel 4, and the BBC. Also in the United States, such as Nightline, CBS, ABC's Primetime, Peter Jennings Reporting, CBS Early Show, and 48 Hours, NBC's Dateline and Fox News' The O'Reilly Factor, as well as on cable programs such as A&E, History Channel, Discovery Channel, and the National Geographic Channel. He has written 27 books on the historical Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and earliest Christianity, and his work has been translated into 13 foreign languages, including Polish, Hungarian, Russian, as well as Korean, Chinese, and Japanese. Five of those books have been national religious bestsellers for a combined total of 24 months. The scholarly core of his work is the trilogy from the historical Jesus, 
the life of a Mediterranean Jewish peasant, through birth of Christianity, discovering what happened in the years immediately after the execution of Jesus, to in search of Paul, how Jesus' apostle opposed Rome's empire with God's kingdom. This was co-authored with the archaeologist Jonathan L. Reed. Along with Marcus Borg, he has co-authored a series of books, The Last Week, a day-by-day account of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, The First Christmas, What the Gospels Really Teach About the Birth of Jesus, and The First Paul, Reclaiming the Radical Visionary Behind the Church's Conservative Icon. His most recent book is How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis to Revelation. In today's show, we discuss Mr. Croissant's view of the historical Jesus, his reconstruction of the situation in the first century, and his portrayal of Jesus as a Hellenist Jewish philosopher. We also discuss Jesus' Jewish heritage, his social teachings, as well as his revolutionary tactics against the Roman Empire. We would like to talk about the historical Jesus from your perspective, especially as um, there's so many different... uh, ways to look at it. So I've been doing research on your books and um, I would like to start a conversation with that. Uh, Well, first of all, I want to talk about the Jesus Seminar. Is it still around? Basically, the Jesus Seminar did what it set out to do in the 10 years it was. And then it, I suppose, it dissolved itself and other seminars took its place. There's a seminar on earliest Christianity or a seminar on the Acts of the Apostles, etc. But it was only one seminar of many run by the West Star Institute. Okay. And um, so when they interviewed you and other scholars that were part of that seminar, uh, were you speaking as members of the group or was there like like a representative who... um, who kind of discuss the findings? No, it was done quite differently. Basically, anyone could be a fellow of the seminar. The title was a fellow of the seminar if you had the basic credentials, in other words, a doctorate in something that had to do with biblical studies. Anyone who wanted to do was invited. At a given meeting, for example, let's say we were discussing the what Jesus said in Mark's Gospel, say that was the topic for it, then various scholars would prepare papers ahead of time. Academic papers, the type of ones that you could publish, say, in a, in a journal, but we wouldn't read them to one another. Um, that was a little waste of time after Gutenberg. So what we did was we wrote the paper, and they had to be presented ahead of time, sent out to all the members, and then you had, say, whatever it was, 20 minutes, half an hour, to present your case. And let's say, for example, um, that I'm making this one up. I was invited to discuss the incident between Jesus and his fellow Jews at Nazareth where they where they attack him. So wasn't I was supposed to read that? I would be asked, do I think that actually happened? Do I think Mark is recording something that was actually there or, or what and why? Then when I had presented my paper and other people had presented theirs, there would be a vote of those there. And the purpose of the vote was not that you can establish truth by a vote, but what you establish by a vote is your certainty. So let's say we have 40 people, and the paper is presented saying this did not happen or this did happen, and there's a vote. 
then the record would be very different if 40 people agreed or <laughs> 21 agreed and 19 didn't. So the purpose of the vote was that we were able to tell people the seminar decided um, by whatever vote margin that this was said by Jesus or was not said by Jesus, was created by Mark. So that pretty much was what we did, and we went through the, the Gospels like that, taking every major item and discussing it. But there was no, how would I put it, we were not being interviewed. We were at the seminar ourselves, and if the press was in there, and of course uh, lay members could come in and listen, but it wasn't really an interview. It was run like a seminar. Okay, yeah, because uh, in the different, um, the search for Jesus and um, Christianity, what was it called? Uh, from Jesus to Christ, the early Christians, uh, they always put a Jesus seminar under you or other scholars' title, but it was just something that you were part of. It wasn't that that was your organization or... Yes. Yes, we started in around, I think it was 85 or 86, and it went for 10 years. It met twice a year, usually for about four days. And basically, what we wanted to know, for example, when Matthew says that Jesus taught his disciples, the Our Father as follows, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, was that created, was that actually done by Jesus? If you had been there, in other words, could you have heard him do it? Or was it created by the early tradition as a very good summary of what Jesus was about? Or did Matthew create it as, a, again, a very good summary of what Jesus was teaching? None of which intended that there was anything wrong with that. It would be like a dramatic way of summarizing what Jesus was about. But <clears throat> we were asking, was it done by the historical Jesus, by the subsequent tradition, or by the writing of the evangelists? Those were the questions we wanted to know. So um, an article that I found regarding um, the 503 saints of Jesus said that your findings showed that only 30%, um, actually that 31 were authentic, 200 were possibly authentic, and the rest were doubtful or completely unauthentic. Is that um, pretty much the findings? When my memory goes back to say that 18% were definitely from Jesus, something like, say, blessed are the poor. But, I mean, I never liked the word inauthentic because sometimes it seemed to me that a person could make up a saying of Jesus that was absolutely valid, but Jesus never said it. If, you know, if, if, if somebody said, Martin Luther King said, let my people go, well, I don't know if he ever said that, but it's a good biblical quotation from the book of Exodus. And if he didn't say it, he should have said it. And if he, if he, it's a good summary of him. So I would not want to call it inauthentic. I would prefer the word like unoriginal. It wasn't said by Jesus because a lot of the material that was put on the lips of Jesus, I thought was excellent summary of what he did. So, so there's no presumption that if it doesn't come literally from Jesus, then it's some kind of rubbish. Or It's simply a matter that the four versions we have in the New Testament 
didn't say this is the history. They said this is the gospel, and gospel means good news. So good news, as you know, is always a decision. If somebody says good news, uh, X is the new presidential candidate, then you'd have to say, well, is that good news or bad news? I want to know who X is first. So gospel is a very honest word that says what I'm telling you here is how I think the historical Jesus is good news for you. Somebody else, like Pilate, might say, rubbish, (laughs) it's not good news, I'm going to execute him. So there's nothing wrong with a gospel being a gospel. It is very wrong, however, to take it for granted that a gospel is 100% history, or ever was intended to be. In an interview with uh, Amy Jill Levine and the writer of... um... Uh, Constantine's sword, um, they were saying like, well, there's no way that Jesus would have ever said that uh, regarding uh, the way he was treating different um, members of the community that came to him or things like that. So how much of it is like the predilections of the scholar as compared to using historical um, sources or also comparing him to the first century uh, Judaisms of that time where... um, was he saying something that was uniquely to his group, unique to his group, or was it something that was in relation to other mystical groups of that time, or like in your findings to the cynics? Uh, is there um, um, what is the measuring rods or the the different tools that you use to be able to say which one is more authentic than another? Well, the first thing that you'd have to know is what makes sense of a Jesus speaking in Galilee in, let us say, the 20s, as distinct from a Jesus speaking in John's Gospel, let us say, in the 90s. So that's, that's the, the matrix that you're watching. What is he saying within the first quarter of the first century in the Jewish homeland under Roman occupation? That's your basic norm. Now, once you have Jesus saying, X, you might well say, well, he'd never say Y because he's already, we've already decided that he said X. Like, I think if somebody said, Martin Luther King said, well, if, if nonviolence doesn't work, we can always get guns. I would say, no, I don't think he said that. You're going to have to prove to me he ever said that because it's in such contradiction of everything else I know he said. So yes, you may sometimes decide on a negative simply because it is in complete disagreement with something else that you know. But, for example, I would not say Jesus couldn't say something. I'd want to know, first of all, what do I think in that matrix, for example. He is clearly saying, I think he is advocating I'm being very careful now, nonviolent resistance against Roman occupation of the Jewish homeland. And the clearest evidence for me is not so much anything Jesus ever said as what Pilate did. Because one, Pilate executed him publicly by crucifixion, which means he considered him to be a revolutionary and not just a, a nuisance or a philosopher or a, you know, speaking out of turn. But he never attempted to round up his closest followers. So from Pilate's judgment, if I only knew that, I would know that whoever this Jesus is, 
He was advocating resistance to Roman law and order. Otherwise, they wouldn't have bothered a public crucifixion on him. They'd just have booted him out of town, back to Galilee. But since he didn't try to round up his followers and crucify them all in the long row, and by the way, Antipas did the same, of course, with John the Baptist, that fits in to the civil law of Rome, that what you do with what we might call an agitator, or people who disturb the people, or rouse the people, but who are not violent. What you do with them is you pick off the leader. And in, in Roman law it said, depending on the leader's rank, you can either crucify him, throw him to the beasts, or exile, exile him to an island. So that is the way the Romans handled, again, my language is very careful, nonviolent revolutionaries. You pick off the leader, and if you're still at it five years from now, we pick off your next leader and your next leader until you finally get the message. It was, of course, a disastrous decision because by picking off the leaders, what you do is make martyrs. And could it be that um, the Jesus movement is really um, like a reaction to a martyr um, king, kind of like uh, there's some research that talks about three different messianic figures in the first century or in the beginning of the century that uh, they were killed by the Romans and there's a possibility that some of their followers made them into even greater messianic figures Um the book that comes to mind is Israel Canole's idea of the first Messiah or that Jesus drew ideas from from other leaders who who had a similar fate. Uh, is there a possibility of that or was his message completely unique to him? By the way, I don't myself talk about Jesus' movement. I talk about the kingdom movement because I don't think Jesus talked about himself. I think he talked about God and the kingdom of God. And that is a, how would I put it, is a subject and a theme that any Jewish hearer in the first century would understand. The kingdom of God is what the world was supposed to be like, and especially the Jewish homeland, with the elimination of war and violence and, and oppression and injustice. God established the a peaceful earth. So the kingdom of God was supposed to be like, what does the earth look like if God was running it fairly and justly? Uh, and of course, the negative side of that would be, and not Rome, running it unjustly. So that's basically the matrix. Out of that could come, and did come, people who said, therefore, we should take up arms like Joshua did in the Old Testament and fight for God, and we shouldn't be afraid. And there were people who also said, and I'm not just talking about Jesus now, in the first quarter of the first century, we should fight nonviolently and be ready to die as martyrs if necessary, but we should refuse to do what the Romans want to do if it's against our own Jewish faith. And we know about both violent and nonviolent resistance to Rome in the interval, say, between the Great Revolt of 4 BCE and the even greater revolt of 66. So during the period of Jesus, and of John the Baptist, of course, we know of nonviolent resistance, and that continued before them, during them, and after them. So I, I don't have to think that 
any individual is imitating any other individual. These are all possibilities that are built into the matrix of resistance to Rome. So, yeah, every time I, I, I read a, a book or a, there's a story about Jesus being a zealot or, um, you know, him being a revolutionary on the military sense, I always wonder, like, where was his army? Where was his military tactics? What was his final plan? And is there any evidence of him being the opposite? Non, instead of being nonviolent, actually being violent? Um, I only heard of... No, there really isn't, because, you know, I really trust more than anything else, I trust Pilate's judgment. Pilate was not an idiot. Pilate got it, I think, from his point of view, precisely right. So did Antipas with regard to John the Baptist. They executed the leader and made no attempt to round up the closest followers. That tells me, as clearly as anything can, and I do consider it to be historical fact that, Pilate, that he was crucified, that in the judgment of the Roman governor, this person is a revolutionary. If he was just a nuisance or an annoyance or a philosopher, Rome never crucified philosophers. They crucified activists. And if they were violent or in any tendency to violence or they thought there was a, a real possibility of violence, they grabbed all of them, at least everyone they could. So just from Pilate alone, Almost if I didn't have a single word from Jesus or knew nothing else about him or his followers, I would say, when Rome crucifies a leader, you can interpret that leader as advocating, advocating, not just, you know, a philosopher writing nice books and things like that, but advocating publicly resistance to Roman law and order. And that, that doesn't get said by, by the way, David, that doesn't get said nearly enough by scholars that if Jesus had never existed, there was all this other evidence of nonviolent resistance to Rome in the first half of the first century before the Great Revolt of 66. They, they don't say enough that leaving Jesus aside for the moment and looking at the matrix of the time between the, great, the two revolts I mentioned in 4 BCE at the death of Herod the Great and the Great Revolt at, in, under Nero in 66 that ended with the temple destroyed and Jerusalem devastated. During that period, Josephus gives us lots of examples of nonviolent resistance to Rome backed by a willingness for collective action, even if it involved martyrdom. That's the myth at which Jesus fits. So this idea of him being um, either influenced by the cynics or being a Jewish cynic philosopher, um, so he wasn't only a philosopher, like you said, he, he put the philosophy into action. So what were the key... Uh, elements of his philosophy that um, that brought him into trouble or that made him unique among the other leaders of that time? Okay, um, two things. If, if a Gentile, a non-Jew, was listening to Jesus speaking and trying to understand him and hearing him saying things like, for example, blessed are the poor, 
that Gentile, that non-Jew would say to himself, this guy sounds like a cynic philosopher to me. That would be the judgment of a non-Jew if he heard Jesus. If, of course, it was a Jew, he would wonder if he was a prophet or the Messiah or something like that. But I don't want to talk so much about a unique message because the prophets had been saying what Jesus was saying for 500 years before Jesus ever appeared. Amos had said the same thing, so had uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah talked about God's um, kingdom on earth. Daniel had talked about it in Daniel chapter 7. What made Jesus unique was time and place. If Jesus had existed and did everything we know he did, say 50 years before, let's imagine the year 20 CE, let's imagine that year as a point. Put Jesus back 50 years, that would be 30 BCE. Herod the Great was taking over the Jewish homeland with Roman authority. I would give Jesus about 10 minutes under Herod the Great before he would have been squashed like a bug. It's a bit like saying, why didn't Martin Luther King arrive 25 years earlier? Because if there were any Martin Luther Kings 25 earlier, they were lynched. And we never heard their names outside where they were lynched. There's a time and place within which something can happen. Outside that time and place, it's not as if the person is so unique and Jesus, if he'd been dropped down in, in, in any, anywhere else in any other time, everything would have been the same. It wouldn't. What had happened in the first century is you had a Roman globalization, you might call it, Travel of ideas and everything all over the Mediterranean was possible. The Mediterranean was ruled by a human being, Augustus, who was considered to be divine. So that world can understand a claim that not Augustus, but this Jesus is not just human but divine. That's a claim that we may not find meaningful for us. That may not be our language but it was absolutely the language of the first century. So when people begin to claim that Jesus as Messiah is divine, is transcendental, they are taking language that is not unfamiliar, actually, even within the Jewish scriptures, applying it to Jesus and saying, quite frankly, in your face, Rome. And Rome, getting the message, replied, in exactly the way you would expect them, to crucify Jesus. So all of that could have happened in another time, and we'd never heard of Jesus. But what happens is his followers go to Jerusalem to wait for his expected return. Jerusalem is a pilgrim city with contacts all over the Roman world. Paul arrives and takes the message out to the great Roman capitals. So there's a breakout of the message, which could, could have not happened, let me put it that way, could have not happened. If you imagine that the followers of Jesus, um, including everything that happened, had stayed in Galilee, speaking in the small villages and towns of Galilee, and the great revolt of 66 had arrived, I don't imagine that Christianity would ever have been heard of again, or Jesus. So to try and make somebody unique 
and to take them out of their own time and place. It's kind of silly, to be honest with you, because nobody can be unique except with their own time and place. It doesn't mean that the time and place explains them. Just think of any of the names that I mentioned. Think of Martin Luther King. Do you really think it would have worked in the 50s? It wouldn't. So a person with a vision needs to have the traction of a given time and a given place. Or the vision may die out. It may just galvanize and empower some local people and be never heard of again after 50 or 60 years. Can the same be done with um, his followers? Because it's kind of like studying the the Jewishness of Jesus as compared to the Jewishness of his followers. So the historicity of Jesus, what about the historicity of Paul, of Judas? I remember in um, one of the interviews, um, they asked you about the, the name Judas, and you're the first person I ever heard connected to an anti-Semitic um, like stab at the Jewish people from the writers of the Gospels. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, well, let me correct that slightly, David. I was the first, if I was the first person you heard, I was refuting and refusing to accept a, another scholar who had said that the, the traitor was called Judas to show that he was Jewish. But that's our reading of it. Jesus had a brother called Judas. According to Mark's Gospel, in, in, in Greek he'd be called Jude, J-U-D-E. That's, for the first century, would be no more Jewish. If you wanted to make him a symbol of Judaism, calling him Judas does nothing. That doesn't do it. So the question of whether Judas is a real person who betrayed Jesus or is somebody whom Mark creates to... To enliven his story, as it were, because most great disasters need a betrayer, and you're always expecting that. And Mark spent so much time criticizing the Twelve, criticizing the Twelve, criticizing Peter, criticizing Judas, um, James and John, and he always mentions that Judas was one of the Twelve. So I am uh, almost 50%, 50% on whether Judas is a real figure who actually did what, what he said or whether he was created by Mark. I, I could be persuaded really either way and probably I've, if I've ever come down, at, I've come down at the most like 51%, I think he might be a real figure. But I could be just as easily persuaded that he's not. So what did Paul do with the message of Jesus? Was he faithful to the original message or did he transform it into something else? From No, absolutely as far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> excuse me, he was faithful. I think the big shift in understanding of Paul at the moment is getting him out of the Reformation in the 16th century back into the 1st century and realizing that it's not a matter of 
Christianity against Judaism or even Christian Judaism against non-Christian Judaism, to use that. It's what Paul would consider himself to be an absolutely a faithful Jew who is using the Jewish tradition against Roman imperialism. Now, of course, Christian Jews and Pharisaic Jews and Sadducean Jews and Essene Jews all opposed one another in the cauldron of the Roman Empire, whose policy was always divide and conquer. But the fact that they are debating intensely with one another, and nastily, of course, with one another, is because each has a vision for the future of their people. What Paul did, he did two things. One was he took the message of Jesus out of the Jewish homeland to the great capital cities of the Roman Empire. If you notice, most of the places you hear Paul, he's at Antioch. He was born in Tarsus, capital of Cilicia. He's in Antioch, capital of Syria. He's in Ephesus, capital of Asia. He's in Thessalonica, capital of Macedonia. He's in Corinth, capital. Everywhere he goes, he goes for the capitals. His, his policy, his strategy is don't try and get all the small towns or even all the, the Roman cities. Go for the capitals, and then after 20 years, by around 55, he makes the astounding statement in the epistle to the Romans, I'm finished in the East, I'm going to Spain. And you want to scream and say, there's thousands of cities in the East that you haven't even visited. And he would say, yes, but I go for the capitals. Then from the capitals, it'll go out to those cities, and from the cities, it'll eventually get out to the countryside. So his strategy was, first of all, to take Jesus' message to the capitals. Secondly, to put it in a language that the capitals would understand. For example, if Paul was speaking to Jews, he might say, Jesus is the Christ or I believe Jesus is the Messiah. If he was talking to a Gentile, a non-Jewish, say, Roman citizen, he wouldn't say Jesus is the Messiah because the guy would say, huh, what's the Messiah? He would say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, Lord is the title of Caesar. The Lord is Caesar. So to say Jesus Christ is Lord is quite frankly, high treason. You mean, you mean the, the Roman might say, you mean he's the Lord? Not just one of the many little lords all over the place. If he's the Lord, then what's Caesar? I, I would hear, says the Roman, high treason. So Paul's language, which we may find new, uh, rare Christian invention, utterly appropriate to the Roman matrix. That's what's going to get him killed. And the third thing he does, of course, is he writes. He gets this stuff, even if it's for occasional purposes, he actually writes. So the words of Paul will be already in print by 55, and nobody will be recording Jesus much before that. So his the problem we have with Paul is that we don't recognize that the language is the classical language of Roman imperial theology, justification, Lord, uh, Son of God, Redeemer of the world, Savior of the, whole, of the human race. All of that is language that is in 
Roman imperial theology on their statues, on their temples, on, in their poets. And Paul is speaking a language that everyone gets immediately. Like today, if somebody said in America, I want to be president, well, we know what a president is. We, we know what wanting to be president. We understand the language. You wouldn't say, what's a president? So what are the roles, the, what is the role of the Gnostic Gospels? Um, do you consider them a little more authentic than other scholars? And what are the reasons behind that? The Gnostic Gospel? I'm sorry, I missed the word that you said before Gospels. What did you say? What are they? Oh, um, the Gnostic Gospels in general are almost um, unhelpful for the first century at the time of Jesus. They really are very, very much important to see what certain groups in the second century were making of Jesus. But I cannot find and say the, the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Mary anything that gives me historical information. It's almost like if you could imagine the process going from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John into the Gnostic Gospels, the historical, the historical events are being so consumed by theological interpretation. It's not a question whether it's right or wrong. It's already starting, of course. The, there is nowhere in the entire New Testament that anyone records anything from Jesus without theologically interpreting it. But you, you have at least an ability, say with Mark, to get some idea, well, this is probably what happened, and here's how they're interpreting it. With the so-called Gnostic Gospels, you really are dealing with almost pure interpretation. That doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it interpretation. I don't find it all helpful for historicity of Jesus. Um, you know, I've read very um, anti-Jewish um, writings from the early church fathers. Um, do, where do you think that bias or that kind of specific uh, hatred of um, Judaism come from? Is it just a cultural thing? Is it something that is based on misinterpretation of the scriptures? Or is it something that was um, kind of bro brooding for a while in the in the Roman Empire and it was manifested through the different wars against um, the rebels in, in Israel at that time? And then it, it got turned into a theological construct to be used against other groups? Well, the beginning of the debates are intense intrafamilial debates. The, the titles I used before were very careful. Christian Jews, that is, that is Jews who believe Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. Christian Jews, Pharisaic Jews, Essene Jews, Sadducean Jews, just to mention four huge groups we know about, were all saying intensely nasty things about one another. They were all struggling 
for the future of their people and opposing the others. Now, I think a lot of the nastiness you're going to find in early Christianity, especially as it moves out of its Jewish matrix, is because Judaism is a far more powerful force in the world than Christianity in the first century, in the second century, in the third century, and until the fourth century, until Constantine throws in his lot with Christianity rather than Judaism. So a lot of the antagonism and the bitterness that you find in early Christian writings is the same way that you find in a presidential campaign from the losers. It's not because they're winning. It's because they're losing. And I would even say myself that if I poised myself in the year 50 and tried to imagine whether the Roman Empire in 300 years would be Jewish or Christian, I would say without a doubt it would be Jewish, not Christian, if you told me it was going to be one or the other. So a lot of the bitterness that you find in earliest Christianity is that Judaism is there, it's attractive, it has its own God-worshippers or God-fearers, those are Gentiles who, if male, are not circumcised, but who go to the synagogue, who support Judaism. So a lot of the bitterness is not the bitterness of the victor, it's the bitterness of the insecure loser. What what about today? Do you feel that interfaith dialogue has um, brought about more understanding among different faith groups, or there's still a lot of work to be done? Um, still a huge amount of work to be done, and almost, this is not saying anything against ecumenism, I think in a way what each group has to do is clean up its own basement. I think Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have to be able to face the fact that they've been around for a very long time. They all carry huge baggage from the past, like any great tradition does. And they have to be able to sort out their, their great tradition and say, well, a Moses or a Jesus or a Muhammad said this in the year whatever. In that time, in that place, this made eminent sense. We do not think today it makes any more sense. So we will quietly, reverently, tenderly bury it. We will say it made sense at that time and place, but it no longer makes sense to, to we who have the spirit of Judaism or the spirit of Christianity or the spirit of Islam. And that is the huge, delicate surgery that each of those religions, and in fact any other religion, has to do as it faces the modern world. It cannot let the modern world take over because its tradition is too powerful and too important for that. But to simply fight the modern world is simply a guarantee that it will be destroyed and become at most irrelevant. So that, I think, the internal work that has to be done by each of the great religions today is at least as important, let me put it that way, as trying to talk to another religion. Because if you're, if, if you're not ready to try and understand your own tradition 
I'm kind of not convinced that you'd be able to do much more than be polite. And maybe maybe being polite, you might say, is enough at least. But it it, it seems to me that it'll be it'll have to be done. That every great religion is going to have to say, okay, this is the spirit of our religion, and this this we don't negotiate about. But this was the way it was expressed in the year 200, or the year 600, or the year 1000. And it made perfect sense in that world, probably. But it doesn't make sense in our world. And so, no, we will not reject the tradition. We will understand it. And therefore, we will understand that because it worked precisely in that time and place, we have a responsibility today to make certain that as we pass it on, we're not not just parroting a tradition, but we're making it a living thing because we're saying this is what it means today. Otherwise, you're not dealing with a tradition, you're dealing with a funeral. Well, it seems that every uh, tradition, every uh, community, they um, pick and choose what they like from the vast um, literature from their group. Um, what is the intellectual, honest way to interpret scripture? I know you mentioned that um, getting rid of things that are destructive or that are harmful to humanity is one way to do it, but uh, to be intellectually honest as a believer, how how does someone tackle the scriptures? Do, do you have to go to an authority, a, a rabbi, a priest, or a imam, or can you engage with it on your own um, as an intellectual. No, that, that's a great question. <clears throat> Excuse me, a great question because it has to do with the integrity of the process. I think here's the way you have to do it, and anyone can do it. But, you know, with certain respect, I mean, to know what you're doing, you have to do your homework. If I want to really talk about anything, even a football game, I have to know a little bit about it. Um, there's a difference between having an open mind and having a hole in your head. But I would say this. If you're reading a text, let us say, or an event in a sacred text such as the Koran or the, the Hebrew Scriptures or the Christian Bible, you don't say, okay, I've just read it. What does it mean to me today? You have to read it first in the matrix of its own time and place. You have to almost shut up for a moment about what it means for me. And you say, okay, when Jesus said that or Muhammad said that, here's what was intended in its own time and place. Here's what people would have understood. So instead of it being a two-way jump from then to now, you have to look at it from then, then. (laughs) Then you can say, all right, I understand now why Jesus said that or Muhammad said that. I understand why they decreed this. I understand why the law was made like this. Now, is that still valid today? So when you compare an event or a law or a saying to its own matrix, then you might say, well, that, that doesn't work today. I mean, a very simple illustration. I mean, when I read the, the New Testament, there's sheep all over the place. Now, sheep don't do much for me. I mean, the only time I meet them is in a butcher shop as, as mutton. So it doesn't really move my heart to be told that Jesus is a shepherd. Eh, 
I understand it. So I will put that into the matrix of its own time and place. I will understand why it was such a powerful metaphor for that time. I'm also aware that I may have to translate it. That, for example, if I'm looking at kingdom of God, and I'm talking in the modern world when we don't have kingdoms, at least not in America and not in Ireland where I came from, I would have to say, what would be a good modern equivalent of the kingdom of God if I'm thinking in America? And I'm not going to say the, the, the House of Representatives of God or the, the Senate of God or something. If we were to say today what kingdom of God meant in the first century, we might say, what do we think the federal budget would look like if God, if the biblical God drew it up? Let's say there's the assignment. The biblical God is drawing up the federal budget for the next year. What would it look like? How would the distributions come up? That gives the same challenge to our modern American world that Jesus' declaration of the kingdom of God gave to the Roman world. And if people start acting on it, of course, they'll find themselves in a lot of trouble, just as he did. So I have to say to myself, what did kingdom of God mean in the first century? Okay, that means I have to do my homework, I have to read the texts, I have to visit the ruins, I have to go to the museums, until I begin to feel like what the first century was like and have a feeling, okay, I think I know what this would have meant to the audience in the first century. Now, granted that time and place, does it still apply today? Or is that simply dated? Quite understood. Maybe a term like waters of life works well in the desert, but if you just turn on your tap for waters, maybe it doesn't work so powerfully. And maybe it'll take another hundred years before all of a sudden we've run out of water and it'll be a very powerful metaphor again. So it's the integrity, at least of the way I try to work, is understand the matrix of its own time and place and then see if it's still valid for the matrix of my time and place. That's the only integrity I have. Otherwise, the Bible is a buffet and you just say, yeah, skip that, take that, like that, don't like that. And it's, you know, about as thrilling then as playing basketball without a hoop. There's no challenge. You just see what you want. The Bible is no longer a window. It's it's a mirror. You just see your own face, and that's nice, but not very interesting. Because that that would be something that young people would say nowadays about why study history, why study the Bible, this dusty book. Uh, how is all this stuff relevant to the age of technology, the age of um, being able to connect with people all over the world? How are these things helpful? And even the atheist community would say that it's all a delusion, it's all a waste of time, and it just makes people feel good about themselves. But how how is it helpful to humanity, all these teachings and all these stories? Well, because, first of all, I would simply say to a, if a young person said that to me, I would say, how do you know English enough to speak to me? Who taught you English? If, if a young person or any person, an old person, has no sense of a tradition, 
then they are rootless, or the below T, L-E-S-S, and may end up ruthless. I do not think that human beings can live without a tradition. I mean, you, you just said technology. It's hilarious for me to say to see a, a kid with an iPhone in their hands as if they invented it. I mean, it, it, it kind of leaves me speechless to think. It's like imagining a, a giant tree with no roots. You know what's going to happen. The first time a storm comes along, the tree's coming down. If, if the roots aren't at least as powerful as the trees, and as I speak to you, I'm looking out at giant oak trees near where I live, they'll come down in a storm unless the roots hold. So the idea that simply because we have a lot of technology, which we do, of course, we have immense technology, the idea that that makes us wise, where on earth do we get that idea from? So I would say a young person who thinks that technology replaces tradition is very, very naive. And I just hope that they'll be strong enough when they run into, when all of us have to run through life, that their roots are strong enough because technology will not save us. Thank you. I guess the last question is, um, is there similarities that you see between the teachings of Jesus and of other um, mystics or um, philosophers from across the world? Because uh, one of the issues that we keep on running into in our show is uh, parallelomania, where, you know, they try... They try to claim that he was just like Isis, he was just like Mithras, he was just like Buddha. And where do you see similarities and differences? Well, I mean, that's just sloppy history, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I would say that, and I'd say it to any scholar who says that. Of course, you can you can draw some parallels. It's to take the Buddha out of his own matrix again. I'm back to my key word or Jesus out of his matrix. It's, it's kind of silly, and I, I, when it happens to me, I like to spoof it by saying, oh, no, no, Jesus was really Irish. Actually, he was, he was Irish. Because it, it's, it's kind of silly. I mean, of course, there, the criterion I am going to say to all the world's religions, I really want to know one thing. What is your vision of the future? for peace on earth. Because if we do not obtain peace on earth, I do not see why, looking across the last 10,000 years of evolution, why we're not going to destroy ourselves. Because we have never invented a weapon we didn't use, never invented one that wasn't more powerful than the one that preceded it, always thought we were safer when we did that. And so... Forget religion for a moment, or God, or Jesus, or Muhammad, or anything else. Just look at the last 10,000 years since the Neolithic Revolution, say. Look at human evolution, and ask ourselves, what's going to save us from destroying ourselves, since we now have the capacity to do it in about a half dozen different ways, and seem to be, seem to be heading steadily in that direction. So whether you think it's a divine challenge or an evolutionary dare, it's more important for me to know how does your religion, any religion, 
contribute to a vision of a world of justice and peace because without that, I think the escalatory violence which has characterized the human species means that we are a magnificent species, to be sure, but so was the saber-toothed tiger. What makes us think if we do not get control of violence, we can survive the future? And that's got nothing to do with God. Or, and the last thing I want is the idea that somehow or other we're, we'd be protected at the last moment from our own stupidity. What protects the human race from destroying itself since we do not have the instinct that most carnivores have not to do really stupid stuff and kill one another or destroy our habitation or destroy our environment? So basically, if I don't hear from any religion something that's giving me an answer to that, then I am completely convinced it's something like the Christmas decorations, fun to take out every now and then and play with, but not really seriously speaking to the human situation. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate your time, and I hope um, we can stay in touch in the future. Um, is there any closing thoughts or, or something you'd like to share be before you go? No, I think that's basically what I wanted to say. That was a good way to close. <laughs> and I think I apply that to theists and atheists alike. I want to know what's your vision to save the world from its own destruction of which we're working so hard at. All right. Thank you very, very much, David. I'll say goodbye now. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic.